This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome to Stories of Scotland 2024. We wish you all the mightiest of turnips for this great new year and a very joyous January. I'm Annie and I am some very distinctive dairy. And I'm Jenny, a suitably moist environment. In this episode, we're covering all aspects of butter. From production to preservation, creamy culinary charms to slippy superstitions, and of course, fatty folklore. Fatty folklore is the most fantastic folklore. Now I am genuinely thrilled about this episode. I am bouncing up and down because it means I finally get to discuss something that I've obsessed over for the past year. It's the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning. It's the last thing I think about before I go to bed. It is what I'm going to name my firstborn child. It is, of course, bog butter. This is such a fascinating aspect of Scottish and Irish history that I try to bring it up in conversation with almost everyone I meet, even at quite inappropriate times. I'll just be in the doctor's office and I'll ask them if they know about bog butter. And you know, weirdly, that's not the first time they've been asked that that day. (laughs) (laughs) It's because the person who was in the waiting room with me heard my lecture on it, so... (laughs) But before we get that lecture, Annie, let's first consider how Scotland became such a buttery biscuit base, turning this corner of Europe into a dairy queen's dream. You need two critical things to make butter. The first is a mammal because mammals produce milk. This means that technically you could make butter from bear milk or bat milk, but luckily for us, 
our ancestors decided that these weren't exactly the easiest teats to tug. The second vital element for making butter is in fact these very ancestors themselves. Because we need a species with enough curiosity to shake, stir or disturb cream enough that it churns into a lovely thick butter. Because while butter is a natural product, it still has to somehow go through this processing stage. What's interesting is the first prehistoric people who lived in Scotland actually lived a dairy-free diet. That is, other than human milk that was given to infants. Hunter-gatherers were all literally lactose intolerant. Their bodies just physically weren't able to process milk after they had finished weaning in childhood. However, this rapidly changed due to the admiration of oryx. Oryx are the wild ancestors to cows, and they were larger than modern cattle. And all modern cattle are descended from oryx that were domesticated in the Fertile Crescent approximately 10,500 years ago. Where's that again? It's a large area in the Middle East where land was cleared for the planting and harvesting of crops, and thus where settled farming and agriculture first developed. And along with the domestication of wild grains, we see the domestication of wild animals. Alright, so our oryx are domesticated in the Levant, and then as our ancestors moved and migrated, these cattle began to spread across the world with them. Yeah, exactly. And over the centuries, this new kind of animal made it all the way to Scotland. Now, this was a slow process, and during it, the cattle bred by humans were continually evolving depending on the new environments and climates that they were introduced to and lived in. And also they evolved depending on the traits that humans deliberately selected for, such as lower aggression, higher milk production, higher muscle mass, or thicker coats. And this is why we have so many regional varieties of cattle, not just across the world, but also throughout Britain. Okay, so now these new cows have arrived, we're ready to milk them, Jenny. What milky magic? Ah, no, hold the cream there, Annie. We are all still technically lactose intolerant. What a curdling calamity, Jenny. Whatever will we do? (laughs) We're going to head back to the Fertile Crescent quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Because the first genetic mutation that allowed people to digest milk properly occurred in Turkey. And as these people travelled across Europe and intermingled with various hunter-gatherer societies, they transferred their knowledge of land cultivation and farming. And they also brought with them the seeds that were native to the Levant, wheat and barley. Over time, the hunter-gatherer tribes gave up their nomadic ways and settled in spots wherever they could year after year, plant these seeds, tend to them, harvest them and process them into food to survive. In a way, we humans became domesticated too. However, while this meant we could produce more calories and thus sustain larger populations, the shorter growing seasons of Northern Europe meant that these crops were far more likely to fail And when the crops failed on a large scale, famine swiftly followed. When these famines happened, people who didn't have the milk mutation were unable to consume milk, which meant that they had fewer calories available to them and thus were more likely to die. Those with the mutated gene could consume and process milk 
and so were more likely to survive the hard times and pass on their genes. This naturally resulted in a higher percentage of the next generations having the milk processing gene and thus this too spread throughout the population over many famines and much time and eventually made it all the way to sunny Scotland along with our new shiny coos. So although these folk couldn't guarantee that their crops would always be successful they could have a sustainable food source from the milk of their lovely cows. Yeah, and the north of Europe wasn't always doom and gloom, especially for these cows, because they were quite happy merrily grazing on their diverse pasture lands and lush grasses that were a result from all the rain we get. I love a carefree cow. (laughs) And the further north we venture and the wetter and colder it gets, we see that the people living in these areas were unable to consistently grow enough crops to feed their communities throughout the long, dark winters. And so they especially began to develop a prevalence for the milk tolerance mutation. For these people, milk became a vital part of their diets. It was a key to their survival and health, not simply an extra abundance which they could enjoy. I had no idea my ancient ancestors went through so much just so that I could enjoy ice cream without getting a tummy ache. We are truly a product of our prehistory, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) As for that matter, it's the story of how humans are thought to have discovered how to make butter in the first place. The tale goes that nomadic people would tie saddlebags of milk to their pack animals And then they would travel long distances. And with every step of their donkey or camel, the cream would be disturbed with the rhythmic walking movement of the animal. And this eventually, over the length of a very long journey, naturally made butter. However, throughout time, humans have always been curious creatures. So what might have started with this accident would no doubt have been turned into a process and spread very quickly reaching Scotland in no time at all. Well, maybe hundreds if not thousands of years, but that is just a drop in the milk pail when it comes to time. Well, Jenny, I want to take you from the introduction of dairy to the land that would become Scotland but didn't have the name quite yet, and even further west into Ireland during the Bronze Age. Because by this time, butter is not only a well-established part of their diet, but... The ancient Irish communities are beginning a practice that will soon find its way across the seas and into Iron Age Scotland. They are creating bog butter. Oh, here we go, Annie. It's time. You've been pitching this episode to me for months and I can see it in your eyes. You can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Ever since Cursed Cow's journey, I knew this was going to (laughs) happen. I strongly believe that bog butter is one of the most beautiful things in the whole universe. That is a huge claim, Annie. But to be fair, I have heard you talk about it so much over the last few months that I I think you've actually convinced me that it is too. Yeah, (laughs) I'm a convert. As an artifact, it is stunning. There are few masterpieces that can present us with so much insight into an ancient civilization whilst also raising so many questions about it. I strongly believe that bog butter actually belongs in the echelons of the wonders of the world. (laughs) You know, I'm not sure any other wonders of the world can potentially be spread on bread, so there might be room for it. 
<laughs> Tell that to the Library of Alexandria or the Temple of Artemis. Bogbatu, <laughs> which is up there with the pyramids, for anyone who hasn't come across it before, is big butter that has been buried in a bog. It does exactly what it says on the cask. Almost 4,000 years ago, or round about this time, Irish communities began churning large quantities of butter before putting it into wooden containers. They then buried it deep in their back garden bogs. At some point, and we're not sure when, but 2,000 years ago, this practice made it across the waters to Scotland. People here also began churning a lot of butter and plonking it into their own bogs. And what do you know, Jenny? Here we are, 2,000 years later. A crofter in the Scottish Highlands can be out cutting peat to burn in their multi-fuel stove and they hear an unusual thunk on the edge of their peat spade. And there they discover the long-forgotten bog butter still in its wooden container, still recognisable as the butter that it was. I think that's what's most amazing about this, is that still, after thousands of years, it's clearly butter. And this is because bogs are great environments for preservation. They are waterlogged and so have very low levels of oxygen and a consistent cold temperature. These natural environmental factors massively slow down the growth of bacteria and fungi which are needed to decompose organic matter. And so the rate of decay in a bog is significantly reduced. This makes peat bogs wonderful natural time capsules that can preserve the things that are sunk into them. From suspected wolves that are actually dogs, to human bodies, to butter. But it's not just the quality of the preservation of the butter that I find completely astounding. It's also the massive quantities of bog butter that is buried that absolutely blows my mind. For example, about a decade ago, there was a bog butter found in Ireland that weighed about a hundred pounds, which is a humongous amount of butter. Especially in this economy. (laughs) (laughs) If you aren't familiar with pounds, then this weight is approximately 1900 Tunnock's tea cakes, or... 10 female wildcats or 137 red squirrels and don't worry if you're having difficulty visualising 137 red squirrels then a normal block of butter you'd buy in the supermarket is 250 grams so 100 pounds of bog butter would equal 181 and a half blocks of butter which is just a huge amount But normally bog butter comes in smaller quantities, like 20 pounds or so, right? Yes, Jenny, but this is still massive portions of butter that we are talking. Yeah, that would be like 36 blocks, or 27.4 red squirrels, or three female wildcats and a kitten. (laughs) When you have so much butter, you need something to put it in. So all of the butter is either wrapped or packed into a vessel, usually a big keg or a troch. Some of these kegs are constructed from wood, or the butter can just be wrapped in a birch bark or a deer skin or any natural fibre you have to hand. One of my favourite ever bog butters came from Skye, and it was found in a hollowed-out, solid portion of a tree trunk. And I find this just 
really impressive. You see an inventiveness of people when they think, what kind of container will I put my excess of butter in so that I can bury it in a bog? And this particular container had been designed to be put on the back of a pack horse. So that helps you understand how they're transporting such a big quantity of butter. And the container showed sign of repair with both wood and leather lashings, which indicates to me that butter would be buried in the bog, dug up, consumed, and then they'd refill the same container with more bog butter and you've got an endless cycle of butter being put into your bog. I like how you have a Annie's top 10 bog butters of all time list in your head. Jenny, it's not in my head. It's on a spreadsheet and it is way more than 10. <laughs> <laughs> you should head over to our Patreon to hear Annie's top 50 bog butters of 2024 list. <laughs> <laughs> I can do a which bog butter are you quiz. Oh, yes. <laughs> The best I can do is a which bog butter reminds you of your significant other meme on Instagram, which are quite popular <laughs> right now. <laughs> I look forward to it, Jenny. I really do. I'm living for all bog butter content. And genuinely, I'll never get bored of bog butter. So if people find interesting things about bog butter, please do send them our way. Just send them Annie's way, okay? I <laughs> <laughs> While Ireland does have some significantly older examples, we know the practice of bog buttering began there. We also have some incredible specimens of bog butter right here in Scotland that are almost 2,000 years old. So like when someone is poking around in a bog and does find some bog butter, is it obvious what it is? Like if I found one of these next time I was traipsing across a bog, would I recognise what I was looking at? Of course, Jenny. Whether it's a few hundred years old or thousands, your bog butter is perfectly recognisable. However, like anyone would, the butter does change its texture after a few hundred years of being buried in the bog and turns into a substance called buttery lit. It's a word I've only seen written and I've never heard spoken, so I'm really apologetic if I've mispronounced that send in a recording of how to say it if you know better than me. Buttery lit, Jenny, what do you think? I doubt any of our listeners are going to know how to pronounce this very specific <laughs> word about bog butter. Essentially, the butter becomes much harder and very solid, like a rock, but a greasy to the touch rock. Okay, and so if you were to say have a piece of bread in your backpack and a butter knife in your back pocket... Could you just, like, scrape some of this off and spread it on the bread and then eat it? Would you die? No, Jenny. I've seen various reports on the complex flavour profiles of bog butter. From complaints of its slightly rancid odour to a description that it tastes like a slightly sweetened animal fat tallow candle. I like how people have actually eaten it. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a human thing. You're like, yo, this is 2,000 years old. Should we try it? <laughs> you know what it is? It's Victorian historians and archaeologists. Even things that they shouldn't be eating. If they've discovered something, they want to taste a little bit of it. Victorian archaeologists understood the world in the same way a toddler does. Before they question what an object is or where it's actually been, they put it in their mouth. And then they just smash it to pieces and yeah. claim that's how they found it. <laughs> 
But I do have to say that a rancid sweetened animal fat candle isn't exactly a favourable flavour. Jenny, I have never, ever wanted to taste something more in my whole entire life. You were born in the wrong era, Annie. You should have been a Victorian archaeologist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even if it was disgusting, I would still 100% try bog butter right now. We We gotta find some and try some. Well, Jenny, to save us from disturbing many peaceful patches of beautiful bog, and for those who have never laid eyes on bog butter, fear not. The National Museum of Scotland has some lovely bog butter on display. But despite my numerous emails, they are refusing to let us have samples of it in the cafeteria, which is the real dream. We're going to have to do like a night at the museum thing where we stay under tables while they close up and then instead of stealing precious jewels, we go and taste the bog butter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jenny, that's my dream. (laughs) When the bog butter is out of its casing, out of its vessel... It looks like a piece of marble rock or an alabaster statue, often in a few varied shades of cream or brown. Sometimes, if it's been very well preserved, it looks like a pure block of off-white fat or lard. I like to imagine it as the colour of fresh butter looking at its own reflection in a trickling, meandering stream, or perhaps... A piece of fresh butter seeing a ghost of butter from long ago, many millennia past. <laughs> like butter on a hot day, Annie. I think you're having a meltdown. Are you okay? <laughs> I just, I really want to know what it tastes like, Jenny. <laughs> okay, but I still have one question and it's the big question. It's the meaning of life, the universe and everything. Why were they putting so much butter in a box? <laughs> Oh, Jenny, how long is a piece of string? For this, we have endless answers. How heavy is a bog butter? (laughs) The romantic answer is that it was a ritual offering for the fairies, for the supernatural creatures who lived in the bogs. Perhaps by gifting large quantities of butter to the fairies who dwelt in this treacherous landscape, you would be granted safe passage through the boggy and oftentimes quite dangerous terrain. I feel like that's quite likely because it is a very well-known fact that fairies love dairy. The slightly less romantic and significantly more prejudiced answer that Victorian English newspapers seemed to really love was that Scottish and Irish people just liked the taste of rancid butter more than they liked fresh butter. Though I've not seen this theory picked up in recent years it's definitely fallen out of favor i mean i do only eat butter if it is technically old enough to vote but that is just because i never cleaned my fridge (laughs) (laughs) and then another theory was that it was a means of food security during particularly perilous times for example when the country was at war or when the vikings were pillaging the coasts butter is a high calorie food source So even if something dreadful has happened, your food has been taken by thieves and raiders, you can watch your house burning down from the hillside. But you have a backup plan. Your blessed bog butter, buried safely, and no one is pillaging that because they don't know where in the bog you've buried it. You know what they say when it comes to Viking invasions. 
Butter safe than sorry. <laughs> <laughs> However, by far the most common explanation is that it was simply a convenient food storage method because you could store your butter for months in a bog and still go back and eat it. Ah, okay, ye oldie refrigerator, if you will. Indeed. You make excess butter in the summer when your livestock have good grazings and then you store it away for the winter months when food may be exceptionally scarce. Salt, which itself is a preservative, wasn't actually added to bog butter, so your bog is doing all of the work of long-term storage. But seeing as you have like a top 50 list of bog butters, it seems that it is still a fairly common occurrence to find some ancient butter in a bog. So why was so much of it left in the ground? Surely it was an important resource and wouldn't just be quickly forgotten. We just don't know. If the people burying it were indeed gifting it to the fairies, or even the bog itself, then it makes sense that it is a ritual sacrifice of butter and it's going down in the bog for good. But then if people had hid it because the Vikings were raiding them and they wanted food security, but then they'd all died defending their dairy cattle, then there would be no one left to dig it up again. So... Unfortunately, the answer is lost to time. There's a thousand reasons why people might not be able to go back for their bog butter, and we just don't know why so many of them left their butter buried in the bog. Well, the good news is that there has been some interesting analysis of bog butter since their modern discoveries that gives us some valuable insights into the past. For example, cow hairs have been identified within samples of bog butter This suggests that the butter was churned in cattle skins. The oldest bog butters are from Ireland, and they are just shy of 3,500 years old. And then the most recent bog butters are from the 1600s. So we can see that within a transforming world, there's a strong continuity for the Irish and Scottish people who were living near bogs to bury their butter This is a tradition that they kept, that they held, that was ongoing. Little fact check for you there. I was reading one of my favourite books, the Guinness World Book of Records, and it has the oldest bog butter specimen as being found in Ballard Bog in Ireland, and they estimate it to be 5,000 years old. Mm, This one really surprised me, Jenny, that the Guinness World Records seem to accept this without rigorous verification. Hmm. They estimated the bog butter at 5,000 years old, but they didn't radiocarbon date it, so they can't prove it to me. And then all of the academic texts on bog butter that I've read suggest that the grandmother bog butter, the oldest one that they can find, is only about 3,500 years old, so she's not quite 5,000 years old yet. But I've thought about this so much Would a bog butter that is 3,500 years old taste that different from a bog butter that is 5,000 years old? I think it wouldn't taste that different. I think there are a myriad of complexities that our palates just aren't ready to discern when it comes to ancient bog butters and their ages, Annie. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do have to say that I 100% trust the word of the biggest collection of records of human achievements developed by an Irish brewing company far more than your vigorous research. 
Well, Jenny, I give them the world record for the least verification of bog butter. (laughs) This is bog butter facts, not fiction, Jenny. Okay, well, although we don't know this answer for sure, we do know that the act of burying large quantities of butter was practiced for thousands of years across Ireland and Scotland. And just think how many kegs of bog butter are still within the bog waiting to be discovered. There are already hundreds of bog butters that have been dug up in Ireland and Scotland in the past few hundred years. Just think of all the bog butters that actually got eaten by the people who had buried them. This was an incredibly regular practice and a key aspect of Bronze and Iron Age survival. Make butter whilst the sun is shining and bury it in a bog for when it isn't. Jenny, I believe that we could all learn a lot from bog butter. And I think that everyone should try to be a little bit more like bog butter in their everyday lives. Hard and greasy to the touch. (laughs) As you age, you may get harder, you may get greasier, but it's never too late to get dug up. That's so wise and meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, Annie, all I can say is thank you for that incredible lecture on bog butter that I know you have been writing in your head for months now. You're welcome, Jenny. You're welcome. In return, I have some really cool folklore with a little spread of butter on it. There was once an excellent blacksmith in Yarrowford who had two apprentices. They were brothers, both strong, healthy and capable. The kind of men who would get up for work at 6am and still be singing songs in the bothy until midnight. If those brothers had been a food, they would have been porridge because they always kept going and they smelt like oats. (laughs) However, after a few months of working in the smithy, the younger brother, Angus, began to change. At first, he just looked a little paler and slightly sickly, but then he began to lose his appetite. This was very strange because before he would happily eat triple portions of mince and tatties and still have space for more. Angus was becoming a ghost of his former self, hanging his head low and taking little joy in life. His older brother, Peter, asked and asked what was wrong with him, but Angus would not say. 
Even when a doctor was called, they could not diagnose anything physically wrong with the young lad. And eventually it got to the point that Peter could barely recognise his younger brother and was so concerned for him that he swore he would do anything to make Angus better again. But Angus could hardly look his older brother in the eyes anymore. It was as though he carried a deep shame that tormented him. Then, one day in the smithy, Angus collapsed, almost burning himself on hot iron as he fell. When he came to, he was so shocked that he had fainted that he burst into tears and finally confessed his terrible burden to Peter. Every night for the past few weeks, the blacksmith's wife, a wiry woman named Flora, had come to his bedside and fastened onto him a magical bridle. This bridle transformed Angus into a horse and Flora would then gallop him across the wild glens where she would meet with other evil creatures ghosts and ghouls, warlocks and monsters, and even, sometimes, the devil himself. Flora would make Angus ride for hours and hours, until his hooves felt as though they would fall off. She would whip him whenever he slowed. She would not return until the morning, when she would remove the bridle from Angus so he could return to his true form once more. However, he would be so knackered from the tortuous night that he could barely stand up. All of this happened while Peter soundly slept, away in a world of dreams, whilst his brother was in a living nightmare. And so, Peter did what any older sibling would do, and volunteered as tribute to become the witch's horse for the night. That evening, he swapped beds with Angus, and right on cue, Flora snuck in as usual. She flung the magic bridle over Peter's head, and when he sprang up, he did so as a great horse. She leapt on his back, and he galloped wherever she directed him. On this night, she met with her evil coven in the cellar of a neighbouring laird's. They somehow managed to pass through the door without a key, and all the evil creatures had a great laugh drinking the laird's wine and eating his stored cheese. Flora had left Peter the horse in the stable and she had tethered him in an empty stall and as soon as she was gone he became a very disobedient horse. He rubbed his long face against the wall until finally he loosened the bridle and inch by inch he edged it off his head. Eventually and very satisfyingly he succeeded in removing the cursed contraption and returned to his human form. With two legs once more, he quickly hid at the back of the stable and patiently waited. When Flora came to find her horse, she was furious, assuming that the horse had escaped and was trotting around outside somewhere without her. When Flora turned to search elsewhere, Peter jumped from the shadows and threw the bridle over her head. Lo and behold, Flora became a marvellous mare. Peter got on her back and rode her as far as he could, over hill and glen, through hedge and ditch, until he noticed that she was missing a shoe on one of her front hooves. Although it was the dead of night, Peter took her to the first blacksmith that he could find, and woke him up and paid him extra to fit new shoes onto all of his new horse's hooves. 
And then he saddled her again and rode her all over the region, all over the country, until finally he could ride no more. And he galloped her home and pulled off her bridle, just in time for her to sneak into bed before her husband could awake and realise his wife was a witch. That morning, the blacksmith of Yarrowford got out of bed as usual, but his wife didn't. She was complaining that she was very ill. And so, the blacksmith asked for his oldest apprentice, Peter, to go and fetch the doctor. When the doctor came, he wanted to feel her pulse. However, Flora flatly refused to show him her wrists. The blacksmith tried to take his wife's hand to reassure her, but something wasn't quite right. She wouldn't even let him take hold of her hands under the sheets. During this strange little struggle, one of the blankets slipped slightly to reveal a glint of metal, and at this, the blacksmith tugged the sheets off the bed to unveil an utterly horrifying sight. Flora, his wife, had horseshoes nailed to the palms of her hands and the soles of her feet. With this, Peter explained what had occurred and how the blacksmith's wife was a witch who had made poor Angus very sick by transforming him into a horse night after night to convene with the devil. However, she did not like it when she received a dose of her own horsey medicine. And the next day, Flora was put on trial as a witch. She had a very difficult time proclaiming her innocence in court especially when the judge demanded to see this magic bridle in action. Peter brought it out and showed how, when the bridle was secured on Flora, her horseshoes fit her perfectly. With this, everyone had seen enough of the dark magic, and so Flora was banished to live forever as a horse, galloping through the glens in a trap of her own making. Great story, Jenny, but... There seems to be one thing missing. Ah, but wait, Annie. The problem that we still face here is that Angus was still on the cusp of death. He had been so worn down by his time as a horse that even though Peter had saved him, he was still an incredibly ill boy. And so, all the people grouped together to give him a very special remedy. Everyone brought their cows to the kirkyard and they ate the grasses of the consecrated grounds. These cows were then milked, and butter was made from this milk. This butter was given to Angus, and it was only with this that he regained his strength. And luckily, after a lot of blessed butter, Angus was returned to his former health. Wow, you dug up that butter right at the end of your story. Well done, Jenny. Butter pops up again and again all over Scottish folklore. We see it when a cow is cursed and perhaps stops producing milk and the butter runs out, or someone's butter goes missing mysteriously whilst the fairies giggle in the hills. It's really nice in this story that the butter is the cure for some terrible dark magic rather than the symptom of it. Yeah, and I guess that butter is spread all over Scottish folklore because it was such a vital part of daily life. This is something that the bog butter shows us, that for thousands of years, people have been making and storing large quantities of butter. It's clearly very important to them. 
Now that we have a method of keeping our butter and the knowledge of how to encourage our cows to make sacred butter, I think it's time to churn. How do we make butter? Unfortunately, despite cows having four stomachs, they're not inclined to separate their udders into milk, cream and butter. Though I did try suggesting it to one and it told me to move on. Ugh, that was an utterly awful pun, Jenny. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Oh, that's the worst I've ever heard. (laughs) All of our dairy begins life as a very enriched milk, which is then processed into different products. When the milk is left to settle, the cream, which has a high fat content, naturally floats to the top like a jolly cloud. This cream can then be skimmed off. People in our parents' generation might remember milk deliveries when they were young would still have this thin layer of cream floating on top that went to whoever got there first. Then it's this cream that we churn to make butter. In its natural form, cream is an emulsion, or a mixture of fat in water, and the churning process is separating these. So churning itself is a simple but somewhat labour-intensive process. The cream is put into a barrel or a bucket, and then a plunger is used to continuously move, shake and disturb churning the cream. The constant movement makes all of the fat clump together. This is the butter, and then the remaining fluid left over is called buttermilk. Buttermilk was a valued commodity in Scotland's past, and it's a bit of a shame that it doesn't seem as well utilised nowadays. There's a few interesting examples from Fula that explain how to use every aspect of the dairy. First, you have your basic milk, and once you've churned it, the butter. But then you can add hot water to buttermilk to make curds. These curds can then be pressed and used in the making of various things, including delicious bannocks. They also then made kegs of bland, which was watered down whey, a byproduct of separating the curds. This calorie dense drink would then be taken out by fishers who went out in the deep sea half boats. I think this is so cool because it's essentially a protein shake for (laughs) these half-boat fishers. I find the half-boats themselves absolutely intriguing. They are the wee boats that had both oars and sails, usually with a crew of around six men who would all have to be rowing the boat. These boats would head out into the deep waters of the North Sea on long fishing trips. It was an incredibly physically demanding job. The fishers had little rest between rowing and hauling in lines of fish whilst out in the cold and treacherous North Sea with very little protection. If they were stuck out at sea overnight, they would end up sleeping underneath the sail. It was such a hardy way of life. And this drink, this way, this byproduct is such a great way for them to stay hydrated and offer them a little extra protein and nutrients. It's a win-win for the half-boat fishers to be drinking this bland. Buttermilk and whey were also used as a way of giving blessings to sick folk, so it's the perfect blend of superstition and nutrition. Buttermilk could also be used to make oatcakes or even added to your porridge. 
And beyond its culinary uses, another insight into the cultural importance of butter comes from some wonderful Gallic phrases that we have. My favourite is hobokriim, which is an idiom that means as soft as butter. And this description, oh, I, I love it. I think of it as something very delicate. Well, while yours is nice and soft, mine is weird. <laughs> <laughs> It has to do with the clan Cameron because they are known as the soft, buttery Camerons. It's also said that you can ask anything of a Cameron but butter. It's thought that these expressions come from the enemies of the Camerons who were trying to suggest that they would wilt like buttery spinach in battle. Yet the Camerons embraced the buttery title because they loved butter. Butter is seen as a symbol of wealth and fortune. So being a soft, buttery Cameron means that you are living the good life. And they loved that. They flipped it and reversed it and spread it all over themselves. <laughs> if someone said to me, would you rather be a coward, but you've got a lot of bog butter? <laughs> the bravest, toughest warrior ever, but you've got no butter. I know which one I'd be taking in a heartbeat. <laughs> but we are a country rich in buttery sayings. My favourites are... He that's got butter to eat can build the walls. Meaning, if you've got excellent resources, such as butter, then you're going to be able to accomplish a lot. Buttermilk smells like butter. The butter version of if it quacks like a duck, it's probably a A duck. duck. (laughs) Dirty salt will do for hairy butter. I think this means... Like, bad vibes welcome in bad vibes. Yeah, you're right, because nothing says bad vibes like hair in your butter. Or dirty salt. <laughs> the oil of the cow without and within. If that won't heal the gale, then there will be no cure. This is back to the idea that butter can cure you of everything. When they say the oil of the cow, they mean the milk, the cream, the butter and the neat's foot oil which is the oil that can be rendered from the shin bones and feet of the cows. Oh, that's because neat's foot oil is quite special compared to other mammal fats. Normally the fat in dead mammals solidifies at room temperature. If you picture a beefsteak, you'll have seen the solid white streaks of fat in it. However, the fat in cow's legs is different to the fat in the rest of their bulky bodies because it's a fluid even at room temperature. This is because cows have such skinny little legs that their fat deposits in their lovely slender legs have had to adapt to be maintained at cooler temperatures than the hot cow core and thus their leg fat is oil so it does not solidify in their leg whilst they are alive. I have never even considered the melting point of cow fat leg before. Every day is a learning day, Annie. Indeed. And fittingly, let's end with the classic Gaelic phrase Buttermilk has often made a bumpkin. I think this is a play on words because the Gaelic word for bumpkin comes from the word for butter. Though it does sound like something my granny would say to me if she saw me being frivolous with buttermilk to a point of disapproval. Which my granny loves dairy products so I imagine it would need a lot of buttermilk frivolity for that to be too much for her. Well, Annie, do I have a tale of bumpkin butter for you? This is a story of two ploughmen who were out ploughing their fields in the scorching sunshine. As they worked away, sweating like anything, 
they heard the sound of churning coming from inside the knoll they were next to. The taller of the two, a fellow named Will, turned to his companion, Ian, and said, If the dairy maid were as thirsty as I am, she would surely drink the buttermilk. But a moment later, a woman appeared from behind the knoll with a jug full of fresh, cool buttermilk. But Will, despite his complainings of thirst, got such a fright by her sudden arrival that when she did offer him some buttermilk for drinking, he bumblingly refused. Ian, however, was more than happy to accept the fresh buttermilk and took a few wonderful large gulps of it. The dairy-providing fairy then returned to her knoll, but just before she went inside, she turned and said, A long and happy life to the one who did not ask but accepted, and a short and painful life to the one who asked and refused. Will and Ian didn't really know what to make of this, but they got back to work and were both glad when the day was finally over. They parted for the evening and agreed to meet early the next morn to continue their work. But when morning came, Ian was left waiting, for Will had gone to bed, never to wake up again. Ian went on to live happily into old age and told not just his grandchildren but also his great-great-grandchildren to never turn down something a fairy provides when it has been asked for. Very wise advice indeed, Jenny. I'm just going to start wandering around bogs saying how much I'd love to taste some bog butter and hope that a fairy offers me some. (laughs) Although, as we see in this story, fairies can be very fickle beings, so who knows what will or won't offend them on any given butter-churning day. A fairy could offer me a big cursed cowpat and I would happily accept it. I'd just be delighted to have met a fairy even if it then cursed me to die the next day. (laughs) You're just a mythical being pleaser, Jenny. (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) (laughs) But even to this day, butter is still an important part of life in Scotland. A government study in 2016 looked at the Scottish butter market and found that Scotland accounts for 12% of butter sales in Britain, despite being just 9% of the total population, and we spend a whopping £87 million on the butter we eat annually. We also consume 13% more butter per household each year than the rest of Britain, which is 9 kilograms per household. So that £100 of bog butter would last an average Scottish household just over five years, which is not bad for a backyard bog butter stash. How long do you think it would take me to churn £100 of butter? I don't know, but again, if we're looking at expanding our content creation, I would watch a live stream of you trying to churn a hundred pounds of butter. I honestly think it would take you months. Jenny, I've had this bog butter dream for so long. And now that you've said that it needs to be a hundred pounds of butter that we're burying in a bog, I can't have less than that. I also have to tell you, we have to do like 101 pounds so that we can get in the Guinness World Book of Record for the most bog butter buried in a bog. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can end on a funny little poem about the best season for getting your butter for your remedies. Garlic with May butter cureth all disease. Drink of the goat white milk 
at the same time with these. The month of May is the time of year when we have lush young grass growing and so butter is by far the best in this late spring summer time because the cattle are feeding on this. May is also the peak time of year for wild garlic which goes great in your butter However, a little disclaimer that this definitely won't cure all your diseases, but it will be delicious. Not as delicious as all that butter that you're going to be burying in the bogs, Annie, that's for sure. Mainly because yours isn't 5,000 years old yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yet. (laughs) Try to stop me, Jenny. So I met a guy at a Kaylee and he manages uh, peat bogs in the Cairngorms. I can just see your eyes light up as soon as he said that. (laughs) Obviously, I started my bog butter speech and how much I wanted to bury butter in a bog. And this guy was looking at me like I was an absolute turnip. (laughs) But I plied through and I, I, I was kind of asking if I could get permission to bury butter in a bog. And he looked like he really didn't want me going anywhere near his bog. I will just say that if anyone does happen to have their own back garden bog and would like to give Annie permission to bury copious quantities of butter in it, that would be highly desirable. Send us a message if you've got a bog you'd like to sacrifice to Annie's butter. (laughs) It's only a tiny bucket of butter that I'd be burying. You know, it's just a, a tiny little corner of a bog I need to bury my butter in. It's barely any bog at all, just a tiny little piece of bog where I can safely bury some butter. I think it's safe to say the butter will get buried no matter the bog. (laughs) And on that note, dear listeners, thank you so much for blessing our butter by tuning in. We're a proudly independent podcast made in the Scottish Highlands, which we love. And we make this show with a thick spread of passion for Scottish culture on a giant chunk of heritage toast. We are kindly supported by people who contribute to the show via Patreon. So thank you all so much. Because of you, we can bring this show to the world and we love doing that. Especially when we get to talk about things like bog butter. Our latest patrons are the magnificent. Clear, Ailey, Linzuni and Lorraine. Thank you so much for your generosity. May the mountains smile upon you and your turnips always be well buttered. Until next time, Slangeva. Slangeva. I am just sitting here, like, quietly giggling <laughs> at everything you say because you care so much about the pop button. <laughs> like, I'm trying not to shake my microphone. But <laughs> Jenny, when you. I, I know you were like, I appreciate that you fact check, but when you tried to fact check me on bog butter, I was like, no. <laughs> no yeah, that's Don't even dare. <laughs> Kick me out the word, Doc. <laughs> You've overstepped a mark here, Jenny. <laughs> oh my gosh. They also then made kegs of bland, which was watered down... Way. <laughs> Way. <laughs> should, should we do the butter stats? Or... Oh, no, no, we should put this in for sure. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. This, so I, re- I read through the whole report and it was actually more just about like how to increase Scottish butter sales within the butter market in the UK because Lurpak has a dominance, let me tell you. Really? Oh, yeah. And they're Danish. Nothing says bad vibes like hairy butter. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.